Welcome to Identity, a series brought to you by ID Magazine. Join me, Osman Ahmed, ID's Fashion Futures Director, as I explore the enduring legacy of some of the last four decades' most influential subcultures. In this week's episode, we're diving into the dishevelled world of early noughties indie, a time when the party never stopped and inhibitions were left at the door. I've seen anything and everything you could imagine at Trash. There was very much an embracing of club culture colliding with the rawness of rock and roll. I think people partied without the fear of a camera being in their face. In the late 90s, early 2000s, everybody wanted to get as fucked up as often as they could. I remember I used to put on makeup with a Sharpie. It was a kind of like freegan, anti-capitalist rejection of normative beauty standards. There's just some moments where particular records would kind of like chime out and just bring people together in a way that I've not ever felt in any other room, ever. In early 2021, an account appeared on Instagram with the handle Indie Sleaze. Images of a fresh-faced Alexa Chung, Dev Hines, Jeremy Scott and Lily Allen soon followed, often taken by late-night photographer Cobra Snake. The account quickly amassed a global following, fueled in part by a desire for escapism from the restrictions of COVID-19. But it wasn't until a TikTok post by trend forecaster Mandy Lee went viral that the term Indie Sleaze was everywhere. While the Instagram's posts focused their attention on celebrity and pop culture, they amplified a growing nostalgia for indie as a whole. The music, the fashion, the people, and most importantly, the lifestyle. For younger generations, this movement ostensibly represented something both familiar and out of reach. It depicted a time that predates iPhones and Instagram when you could truly let go. And at a time when what you post and how you appear online to find who you are, this freedom from inhibition feels enviably liberating. But what exactly is indie? Why has there been such a renewed interest in it? And did the real-life experience of those involved live up to the fancy of Gen Z, who have stumbled across it online? For me, in my mind, indie is still... That thing that came about in the 80s, I still think of India as bands like the Field Mice or Orange Juice or the Pastels, you know, like the C86 kind of scene or, or maybe the Smiths and um, the Wedding Present, that kind of thing. That was Alex Kapranos, the lead singer of Franz Ferdinand, whose Mercury Prize winning debut album propelled the band to stardom during a previous noughties indie revival. An established figure in the Glasgow music scene, Alex witnessed firsthand the transition of indie bands from art school students and independent labels into the breakthrough success of bands like The Cure and The Smiths, right through to the birth and death of Britpop and into something new altogether. This was, in part, due to the new sound emerging from the US, which revitalised the flagging British scene and eventually took it global. There were bands like Interpol, The Strokes, The White Stripes and The Hives that felt like they were playing as a, a live band and doing something that felt 
fresh and energetic. It felt that it took the UK a little time to catch up, but it, it soon did, you know, bands started appearing over there as well. And it did feel exciting. These American bands brought with them a look and sound influenced by classic rock and roll and elements of post-punk, which crossed over the pond to become noughties indie as we know it. Errol Elkham is the founder of the legendary club night and spiritual home of the indie community, Trash. Starting in 1997 in Soho, for a decade it encapsulated the heyday of the indie era. On any given Monday... Amy Winehouse, Kings of Leon, The Claxons and Peaches could be found on the sticky dance floor of Trash. Whatever bands were in town, they would always come down. So if like the Yeah Yeahs were playing in the UK and they were in London on a Monday, it's very likely that they'd be down at Trash. It felt like everyone who kind of played there was part of it. Felt some affinity with it enough to be there whenever they're in town. So that kind of extended to everybody who played, like, you know, just mentioned Yeah Yes, his sisters, um, obviously bands like Claxons who were London based, right through to, uh, I suppose, other bands who hadn't necessarily played but were just like friends or people we'd met along the way, like The Strokes, uh, The Kings of Leon. We had like moments where when like Grace Jones turned up, which was completely unexpected and amazing as well. And she was, I mean, everything that you kind of, read about her is all real it's it's true like her energy her aura whatever you call it is just so powerful and yeah she came down on what was one of the hottest nights of the summer when the air conditioning had broken down as well and she was dancing all night behind the dj booth trash's playlist was diverse and unpredictable ranging from the stooges to esg lady tron to buzzcocks stereo lab to fisher spooner Every new indie release had a remix. This mashup of musical styles, along with a new subgenre entirely, Electro Clash, was emerging in various small pockets of the UK, including at Optimo Subclub Night in Glasgow, where Alex Kapranos was a regular. I think because culturally they were two separate worlds as well, two separate entities. If you were a clubber, you didn't really listen to bands. If you were into bands, you didn't really go to clubs that much. The two scenes seemed pretty separate from each other, both physically and culturally. Then when the drugs became cheaper, everybody started like hammering it together and <laughs> like going to the same parties. But Alex, how did this differ to the drug culture in the 90s? In the early 90s, to, t- to get an E, it was like 25 quid or something like that. And um, that was prohibitively expensive. And it was only the really kind of like uh, super dedicated clubbed kind of guys that, that that really did E. Then sometime, I think about maybe like 95 or 96, the price of E started coming down radically. And it got to a point where it was like one or two quid for a pill. And uh, it, it suddenly went from being this exclusive designer drug to something that was widely available, extremely cheap and was guaranteed to give you an incredible weekend. This heady combination of rock and roll bohemia with the adrenal rush and drug culture of rave created a feeling that anything could happen. And often, it did. I stare down at the crazy, paisley pattern carpet. It spooks my subconscious. I get a little bit nauseous. Sticky with Czech beer, blood, sweat and tears. 
My name is Carly Shortino, and I'm a writer and filmmaker, and I write predominantly about sexuality and relationships. And I was an indie kid. I really first heard the word indie when, in 2004, when I moved to London from my small town in upstate New York, and this is a true story, I started dating this guy that was in a band, and he told me that he was in an indie band, and I was like, does that mean you're from India? Like, I literally didn't know the word. I was like, picture me in Ugg boots. You know what I mean? Carly Shortino moved to London to study when she was 19 years old and soon found a home in the gritty world of Indy. After dropping out of university, Carly fell in with a South London squat culture where, in the absence of high rents and career expectations, a scene of DIY creativity and community could be fostered and nurtured. At the time, there was a lot of squat parties going on. There was a big community of like young people, college students moving into squats, changing the locks, and like not only living there, but like having art installations and, you know, having these grand ideas about creating a kind of egalitarian commune and that kind of thing. It was like very big then. I remember I went to this one huge squat party. And this abandoned mall in Peckham. And without sounding overdramatic, I really do think it changed my life. For a small town girl like Carly, the lights of London were dizzying. And the combination of no rent and cheap drugs allowed for a freewheeling lifestyle, free from the constraints of corporate pressure or social media perfection. You'd go to like a party, like trash. I remember that party, Monday nights, trash, like the greatest indie party of all time. Errol Alkin and Rory Phillips DJed every Monday. It was almost like a badge of honor to be sloppy and high and crazy. In the late 90s, early 2000s, Everybody wanted to get as fucked up as often as they could and as far as they could and uh, just really enjoy themselves and have a very, very good time. And of course, there's there's ups and downs to that. I think uh, some people really destroyed themselves in the process of doing that. And I've definitely got some friends that were casualties of that, but damn, it was fucking amazing as well. What made this indie scene truly unique was its precarious balance of both IRL, you had to be there exclusivity, and the forums, blogs and digital platforms such as MySpace that were nascent precursors to social media. Though few people had laptops, let alone smartphones, young millennials were tapping into online culture with no real understanding of its significance or what it would one day become. There was a thing called Live Journal. It was like a kind of like a blogging platform. The idea was that you kept your own journal, your own diary online, and you could choose whether to keep entries public or private to a certain close set of friends. But I ended up meeting like a bunch of people. So I, I guess like guys like Errol and Rory down in London, um, Nadia Kasabia, um, Bishy. There, there was a bunch of people that, that I ended up meeting who were part of the scene in London at that time. And it was the first time you'd meet people who had a similar taste to you 
and uh, then end up meeting them in real life and after sharing your ideas online. It seems like such a unquestionable everyday side of normality now that it's hard to imagine it not existing, but when it first was available to us, it felt very revolutionary. In 2007, Carly started her blog, Slut Ever, which became a central reading for a new generation of women finding feminism without necessarily knowing how to name it. They also discovered like-minded people online. But you would, like, go to an internet cafe or, like, go to the local college library and, like, get on the computer and have your hour where you are on MySpace. And... It was like such a big deal who was in your top eight and wanting to get in like the cool kids top eight and what song you chose was a big deal. You know, whether you're choosing like, I'm sure I had like some Lady Tron song or whatever, but it did start to feel like this is an advertisement for me. And I really was important to me to look cool. And so, yeah, I definitely started to feel like the... Door was opening a crack to it not being our own little world anymore, where there was an audience somewhere. It felt like the collision of the old world and the new world at that time. It was the beginning of the internet age, yet all of the infrastructure of the old world, uh, the physical print media, the terrestrial TV stations, the terrestrial radio stations, it all still existed in all of its strength and all of its financial power. So you had the, the, the two simultaneously. And also it was a time when there was a certain naive positivity amongst everyone and their approach to the internet. It was before the true horror of its capability was, was revealed. Here's Errol Elkin again. Obviously it wasn't until you know iPhones, which would have been about 2006, I think, which is just at the cusp of almost the end of trash, because Trash finished in 2007. So by that point, not everyone had a camera in their pocket either. So Trash kind of escaped a lot of that. I think people partied without the fear of a camera being in their face. Part of the appeal of this scene, particularly to women and queer people, was a sense of liberation from the watchful eye of mainstream society and from conventional expectations of beauty and behaviour. If there was a look, it was to look as if you weren't trying, as if you'd rolled out of bed the morning after the night before, which you probably had. This went hand in hand with student culture and so-called anti-capitalist values. Shopping in charity shops, trading with friends, using anything you could get your hands on to use as makeup, or dyeing your own hair. This was a scene in which polished displays of wealth were considered tasteless, and participating in commercial or corporate life was considered deeply lame. Carly Shortino explains why. Yeah, we didn't need to be like injecting our lips with filler and like doing our makeup for seven hours and like contouring our face and like buying designer clothes to like feel cool and hot. Just sort of like kind of looked like shit. And we kind of had what was potentially like a rational confidence about how we looked and what we were up to. It definitely was to me the opposite of what I had grown up with just a few years before where it was like, if you want to look good, you get a fake tan. Then I moved into the squat and I was like, what's cool is having 
skin that's gray because you haven't taken a shower or like eaten a vegetable in a month. For Alex Kapranos, the look of his band was just as important as the sound and remaining distinctive from other artists and musicians. I loved charity shops. I loved secondhand clothes shops. That that, that was my thing. My mum was a a seamstress, so uh, she showed me how to sew when I was a kid. So like a lot of the clothes that I wore... In the early, because I was such a skinny sod, like like I used to, I, I used to find these great clothes that never really fitted me around the waist. So I, I used to buy them and then take them in on the sewing machine. So I used to, I literally toured with a sewing machine at the beginning. I saw people just being really super creative, you know, with what they're wearing, especially at trash. You know, a lot of handmade clothing as well. You know, a lot of people who obviously, you know, not just in art but in fashion were making a lot of their clothing you know you could definitely see that clearly or customizing or modifying it felt really really creative for carly and her generation of young crate diggers mining their parents record collections and the rails of charity shops there was something pure about this anti-consumer cultural stance I do feel like the idea of the collective was bigger like what can we do together rather than what can we do ourselves. And I do feel like the goal wasn't to look pretty as much as it was to look free. As media and fashion interests in the bands grew, fueled by paparazzi shots of Kate Moss and Pete Dotti, Alexa Chung and Alex Turner, as well as widely circulated party photography, a more definitive indie style took hold. It was androgynous by nature and lean in silhouette. Thin silk scarves, skinny jeans, low loose t-shirts, polo shirts with the sleeves rolled up. As with the music, while heavily drawing on 70s rock and roll, this look was a mashup of subcultures across generations. And it wasn't long before it was everywhere from the catwalks of Paris Fashion Week to the teenage mecca of Topshop. You got somebody like Hedy Slaman. What was revolutionary about what he did was he he saw the whole from an outside perspective, but not just an outside perspective. He saw it from a couture perspective. And he took the clothes that people were buying in charity shops and he was seeing on the stage and he refined them. His clothes have always been amazing, but that particular period when he was designing for Dior was like... It was phenomenal the, because you had this styling that, that I, would, I was seeing in gigs and on the street and that kind of thing, but like the lines were beautiful. Uh, the cut, the material, and just when you wore them, you, you felt fucking amazing as well. Like they, they, they looked really sharp. And, and I guess at the, the heart of any stylistic movement like that is the silhouette. And uh, Hedy really accentuated and exaggerated a particularly lean, sharp-angled, masculine silhouette, which I'd never quite seen before. As more and more vintage shops began to emerge, capitalising on the demand for one-of-a-kind second-hand pieces and veering trade away from charity shops, indie became a key cultural export for Britain at large. Guitar music dominated the charts, Alexa Chung had been headhunted by TV, and sales of skinny jeans and eyeliner had hit record highs. All of a sudden, perhaps without even meaning to, indie had gone 
Global. In 2005, the Cribs released a song called Hey Seensters. Seemingly innocuous, the emergence of the word Seenster during that time signified a change in the perception of indie culture. It suggested an exclusivity, a pretentiousness, and even a vacuousness that had not previously been associated with this ramshackle DIY scene. Soon, the word seenster was replaced by the term hipster, a slightly more grown-up, professionalised alternative. Accurate or not, it demonstrated how ubiquitous indie culture had become, perhaps a victim of its own success. The hangover was starting to kick in. Was this the inevitable death knell for indie? I guess, for me, it started to die when the majors started sniffing about, when the major labels wanted part of the action it's the sort of commercialization of it which i guess happens to any subculture right like the subculture comes up and then it's commodified and then there's a word we use as a catch-all to kind of criticize you know it's almost like the stereotype of this subculture it's like the hipster and then they become associated with like a certain look and the hoodie and american apparel and vice and a certain kind of irony And I think it's also when people started to make fun of the idea of like, it was like a pretentiousness. It was like, well, I listen to this kind of vinyl, you know, and I eat this kind of food. And I feel like the culture started to be criticized for having a kind of holier than thou, like cooler than thou pretentious energy. For Errol, who'd given everything to his club night trash for exactly a decade, it had simply run its course. I was the resident DJ throughout. I only missed one night in 10 years. I realised that I had given a lot to it. I had no ambition to run any other night at all. And I haven't done. I'm a one club guy, basically. I didn't want to monetize it outside of what happened on a Monday night at the end. You know, we never did like one-offs in other places, never toured trash. I, I really wanted to keep it pure for what it was and what it stood for. I felt that my most powerful times as a resident DJ was when I was like immersed with the audience a lot more. You know, I I felt that at the age of 32, I was too old to be doing that anymore, which is kind of crazy to think about it. I was talking the other day about how of any kind of artistic discipline, music seems to be the one where people do it when they're young. And a lot of people don't transition out of it. Like bands are youth culture almost exclusively, right? And so, whereas a lot of people I knew where it's like, if you're a writer, you often just like, you're still a writer at 40. But all these people I knew that were in bands, many of them no longer do that. And I feel like indie culture did feel young, The generation of young people on the dance floor at Trash had started to get real, which meant getting jobs, a bank account and a proper rental. Many of them would start dressing the part, shedding their charity shop finds for designer wear instead. 
just seeing all these kind of people who you saw as kids on the dance floor and go on to do these amazing things in the in, in the world years later is beautiful but also like no surprise you know you can see just you can see that kind of nucleus in in people and just how they present themselves and and express themselves and that's always the way that, that it is with music and that's what keeps it exciting something happens it goes stale and there's a reaction to that and then something else happens which in turn goes stale itself and there's another reaction to that it's always the same it always repeats itself like that and that's how you end up with something exciting when you know there's a reaction against what's gone before so what did indie really stand for With hindsight, one of the criticisms of this subculture is the lack of political ethos behind it. Compared to folk or punk or so many of the subcultures we've covered in this series, at times it seems indie was just a bunch of kids getting wasted, listening to bands, totally unaware of the world outside the venue. Indie, it could be said, was an apolitical subculture that emerged during a somewhat unpolitical time. But is that fair? I would agree and disagree with that simultaneously. I know that the kind of scene that I came from was both hedonistic and politically engaged at the same time. The only difference was, I'd say that there was less of a desire to let other people know that you were politically engaged. So quite simply, people didn't go on about it. I'd say that's the biggest difference between then and now. For Carly, it was more cut and dry. I didn't think of like squatting really as a political act. Although I guess, you know, there was a lot of like anti-capitalist rhetoric, but it was more like, I think we thought it was romantic. Like we don't need money. My friend used to say penniless decadence all the time. Like we can live glamorously and it's not about that. It was more about romance and art and like living like an artist than it was about politics or political language. Soon, however, with the arrival of social media and its 24-hour digital news cycle, as well as the crash of Lehman Brothers in 2008, which caused financial recession, rising rents and the highest unemployment seen in Britain since pre-war years, young people were starting to face up to a harsh reality. The party was over, and wherever you looked, politics was everywhere. As we've heard, indie was an era of experimentation and hedonism, non-conformity and self-discovery. And thanks to an archive of digital photography and music, it's easy to look back and feel nostalgic. But can it truly be revived or relived by a new generation? It's funny because for somebody on the outside looking back on it, it probably all looks the same. But I know that there were definite different factions within it. Like, uh, I hated the way that bands like the Libertines dressed. You know, like, I, I just didn't want to dress anything like them. Like, the kind of like the overly tight black jeans and the, the vest tops and the uh, the gold chains. And so it's like, oh, no, that's, that's not a good look, man. I don't like that. <laughs> I think the problem is the fact that there's no venues. And if there are venues, they're just so expensive to run that it'd be hard to allow someone to put an item where they're only charging a few pounds to get in. (laughs) 
In stark contrast to today's culture of convenience, of trying to maintain perfection while having the world at your fingertips, indie was a subculture embedded in atmosphere, attitude and imperfection. If you weren't there physically, you didn't really experience it. And if you remember it too vividly, it means you weren't really there. That whole idea of like, oh my God, this is being documented online. I feel like even at the beginning when I started going to parties, there wasn't even that. It truly was, you had to be there because, and not even just like a glib saying, it was like, you literally had to be there or there's no way to know about it. It doesn't seem particularly hedonistic to me when I'm looking back on it because it just felt normal. It just felt like what we did because everybody was like that at that time. Everybody I knew was like that. I've only just realized recently that the current generation is is actually quite, um, if I was being kind, I would say uh, maybe they look after themselves a little bit better. If I was being less kind, I'd maybe say they were a bit square. While today's generation of Gen Z are discovering indie through online images and torn up t-shirts, ultimately there was much more to indie sleaze than just the look or even the sound. It was one of the last physical subcultures to truly go mainstream. And that's why its influence is still felt today. I believe young people will want to come together and celebrate where they're from, like culturally, like musically. I'd like to think it could happen again. I love knowing that the intricacies of what you put into something will be felt. And I tell you something, a club is a really potent place to orchestrate all of this. Identity is written and presented by Osmond Armin, with additional writing from A.D. Duffy and Amelia Phillips. Research was by Niloufar Haidiri, Alexia Marmara and Eleanor Gribbin, with art direction by Callum Glende and Alexandra Talarcher. The producer was Amelia Phillips, and audio producer is me, Robin Lieber. Identity is a Podmasters production for ID.